Welcome to Podopticon. I'm Randall Hendrickson. Confession. In grad school, I didn't read the books on the presidency super closely. They felt like dad books, plus charts, minus the heroics. But that was then. I do read them now. Certainly when a guest has written one, as my guest, Stephen Knott has. His book is titled The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery and the Prospects for Renewal. A lost soul here is a presidency that's not what Knott calls a constitutional presidency. The book amounts to a series of case studies of those who drift to and from the constitutional appreciation of the office. Along the way, we're reminded of what's dark in populist appeals and the deeply anti-democratic tendencies that they're perfectly compatible with. Knotts is an interesting critique of the dangers of presidents appealing fervently to the will of the majority that emerges from a study that covers 11 presidencies. If you want to know what to expect of presidents, have a look at George Washington. Take a gander at Lincoln. Even Taft gets a shout-out here. And if you want to know what's wrong with the presidency and how it got that way, see the likes of Jefferson, Jackson, Wilson, or Trump. For what it's worth, I'm interested in critiques of a populist presidency for other but perhaps compatible reasons. I, too, think to envision the president as representative of the majority is unhealthy. Not will trace this tendency from Jefferson's so-called Revolution of 1800 to the present. I just have more of an amateur's sense that our emphasis on the presidency comes at a cost to our caring about actual democratic politics. You know, where the rubber meets the road. Now, Not will joke that he's all doom and gloom, but I say there's some hope at play in his effort to restore the soul of the American presidency. He finds populist appeals by the likes of Jefferson and Jackson and Trump, while each distinct to be disastrous and dangerous. And yet, he relies on us in the end. There's the hope. That we ourselves can be civically informed enough to select presidents in concert with a party system that works as an anti-demagogic filtration system. I hope he's right. Civic education, I presume would teach a more disinterested view of the presidency as an office constitutionally bound and informally tasked with things like being a unifying figure, or at the very least a figure who does no harm. I presume, too, that civic education would emphasize the local. But there I'm probably getting hopeful. Look at that. It's contagious. And so I hope you enjoy the episode. Stephen Knott, welcome to Podopticon. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So the book is The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery and the Prospects for Renewal. Now, a lot of scholars write on the presidency in various ways, so I figure we could start with asking how your work fits into the literature of the presidency. Um, I think it fits into the literature of the presidency in that uh, a lot of presidential scholars, and by the way, the field of presidential scholarship or presidential scholars is not exactly uh, a recognized field, I think, uh -huh. in a lot of places. It's kind of a, kind of a made-up field. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, um, look, I think it fits in the sense that most presidency scholars that I'm aware of 
Mm -hmm. uh, do think of themselves as experts kind of across the board. They can talk to you about George Washington. They can talk to you about Millard Fillmore. They can talk to you about Barack Obama. So they tend to take, I believe, most of them, a pretty broad approach to the topic. Uh, and so in that sense, I think I fit. One area perhaps where I sort of don't fit mm -hmm. is that there is a bit of a dividing line between historians and political scientists. Every now and again, you find somebody who merges the field, Sid Milkus right. uh, from UVA, Michael Nelson, I think from Rhodes College. Mm -hmm. And I think I fit kind of in that middle area there. I'm right. a political scientist, but I have a love of American history. And I think that infuses the book. So that sets me apart a bit. So now that leads me nicely to the title, which I want to talk about. Then we'll get to the questions raised by the subtitle. This is very handy. I can just proceed this way. So let me ask you, Steve, what's the soul of the presidency? In my view, the soul of the presidency um, is uh, in some ways personified by the presidency of George Washington mm -hmm. and a few others. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not somebody who's just a Washington worshiper. Right. Uh, there are others who sort of followed Washington's lead. But Washington, in a sense, I think, uh, followed the guidance, if you will, laid down by the American framers mm -hmm. at the Constitutional Convention. And I'm thinking particularly of Alexander Hamilton, even James Madison, although Washington and Madison would have their policy differences for sure. Um, but th that founding presidency, that constitutional presidency, which viewed um, uh, the office as a unifying head of state, uh, that the president, in a sense, should appeal to the best in, in the American people, uh, should not seek to divide the people, um, should appeal to their better angels, so to speak. Right. That's, in my view, the role of the primary role of the president and something that has been lost now that we expect to see our presidents serve as policy and party leaders. Your story is just that, the sort of uh, what you would describe as a decline, a decline into something like some, what you call the popular presidency. Um, I do very much want to get to this, but to dwell for a moment, um, to dig in, that is to say, on these these qualities of character. If I remember correctly, uh, in the Federalist Papers, as these uh, move along in their argument, when they come to certain offices, they, they dwell on certain qualities of character. Um, what are those for the president? I think those qualities are a, uh, a, a, a type of disinterestedness. In other words, uh, the president should have the national interest first and foremost. Uh, in, in the back of his mind, whenever he's making any sort of decision. Mm -hmm. He should be free from party or factional um, allegiances. Uh, he should certainly be free of any other sort of corrupt financial or other interests of that sort. Uh, this is a person who is supposed to look out for uh, the well-being of the, of the country and, importantly, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And that frequently requires the president to resist uh, interest groups, to resist those who perhaps may not have the national interest at the forefront of their agenda. So I think this ability to sort of stay above the fray, to appeal to what is best in the American people, to defend the national interest over particular interests, that's, that, that's sort of the centerpiece of this Washingtonian 
or constitutional presidency that I'm making the case for. Right, right. You as so as you've noted, then you you do appeal to Washington, but yours is not a, a book that looks at presidents in terms of greatness, um, quote unquote. Um, not scare quotes. I'm just saying that this is one of the lenses through which uh, the presidency is studied. Greatness, right? Um, and but though he's a hero of your book, Washington isn't celebrated for heroics, you know, or or those he's celebrated for other kind of virtues, you know. And I, I think that's that's an interesting um, that's an interesting move in your book. I don't want to call them the mundane or prosaic virtues, but they're, they're far from it. You've just mentioned some of them. It's 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 a it's about being above the fray. That, that's right. And I, I talk quite a bit in the book, both in regards to Washington and Lincoln and John Quincy Adams, a few others, of this quality of, of magnanimity, of, um, of not vilifying one's political opponents, of trying to see the best in, in, in one's opponents. And again, it fits in with this notion of the president as a unifier. But it does seem to me that one of the qualities that all, in my view, our most impressive presidents have shared mm -hmm. is this sense of magnanimity, this large soul, this greatness of soul. Washington had it. I think Lincoln had it. Again, John Quincy Adams had it. I might even argue, and this is where, going back <laughs> to your original question, I go off the rails or I certainly set myself apart from many of my contemporaries. I think in the 20th century, you see some of those qualities in someone like a William Howard Taft, who isn't exactly the most celebrated figure when it comes to most presidential scholars. No. But Taft, again, did not engage in the politics of personal destruction, mm -hmm. did not vilify his opponents, tried to serve as that unifying head of state, and I think did have that sort of sense, ingrained sense of magnanimity uh, about him. Taft. Taft doesn't make a, he makes appearances, but he doesn't get a chapter in your story. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> is that that's right? That's my next book. Your, is that right? A, a book? No, on? no, okay, no. Okay. No, okay. No. All right. no. I, I, thought, I thought I could have a, you heard it here first, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, I, I mentioned the Federalist Papers, and which they're part of the debate over the ratification of the Constitution. During that debate, Thomas Jefferson meant or claimed to be what he said to be uh, above the fray, right, in the debate. But he'd be president soon enough, and it's with him, really, that you locate the sort of beginning of this decline. So um, I'd really love to expand on that. Sure, sure. Uh, let me put a disclaimer right up front. I've been accused of suffering from Jefferson derangement syndrome. So, <laughs> but with that in mind, I'll proceed ahead. Uh, I do believe that Jefferson, in his so-called Revolution of 1800, uh -huh. uh, which I used to dismiss, I thought that was just typical overblown Jeffersonian rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But the more I've gotten into it, the more I've realized it truly was a revolution, particularly when it came to the American presidency, in that Jefferson wanted to see the office shifted away from an emphasis on its Article II powers, on its sort of constitutional mandate, and shift it more in the direction of presidential legitimacy would be found in a mandate from the people. And that it was the duty, the obligation of the American people to speak for that majority. And in a sense, it's the will of the majority that provides legitimacy for Jefferson's executive. 
he opens the door to that. Andrew Jackson's going to kick it completely open. <laughs> and, I, and I go out of my way to make the distinction between Jefferson, who was clearly a very literate man, yes. and Jackson, who was clearly not. But the two were sort of in sync when it came to this idea that the majority is to govern mm -hmm. and that the president is uniquely situated to speak for that majority. Let's talk about demagoguery. What's a demagogue, and, and how was this character treated in texts relevant to your book's theme, you know, 18th century texts, for instance? Well, I do spend, well, it's in the title of the That's book, right. so God willing, I should spend some time <laughs> on it, although I have been accused of, of not defining it uh, all that well, and maybe, maybe there's something to that criticism. I'm sort of like... Justice Potter Stewart. I know demagoguery when, when I see, see it. it. Yeah. Um, but in my view, and I, and I take my sort of marching orders on this from Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was one of the founders who was particularly concerned about the dangers of demagoguery. The idea that a, uh, uh, an ambitious political figure would achieve power by playing on the fears, the passions, the emotions of the people. And by, again, pitting one group of Americans against another in order to achieve power. And Hamilton referred to this, these tactics as the little arts of popularity. Mm. And that's a direct line from the Federalist Papers. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's my take on it, that Hamilton, and interestingly enough, I'd say Madison as well, was very concerned about this potential. Neither Hamilton, Madison, Washington, or Adams shared Jefferson's belief that the people always reason correctly. Uh, and so that's the presidency, that's the conception of American politics that I find most uh, persuasive as far as I'm concerned. Jefferson and Jackson's faith in the people and their kind of um, dismissiveness towards the idea that demagogues uh, can undermine yeah. republics, that, that disturbs me. This is a, a serious threat of enlightenment thinking that, that we're these automatons who uh, operate through the world making right choices about our interests. Uh, Hamilton thinks otherwise. That and, is correct. Uh, yes. If, if, if I could add to this, Randall, um, and, and I, you know, I'm not somebody who is a real believer in psycho or political biography or psycho history or whatever it's called. But I would say that Hamilton's upbringing in an incredibly dysfunctional Caribbean environment mm -hmm. marred by violence and instability, you know, influenced the later, the adult Hamilton's views of politics and of uh, his assessment of human nature. Jefferson's earliest memory I may mention this in the book. I should have if I didn't. His earliest memory was of being carried on a pillow by a slave. Um, two incredibly different backgrounds. Both men are shaped by those backgrounds to an extent. And, uh, you know, Hamilton's view of the world is much darker. Jefferson's far more optimistic. I would ultimately say, however, that Jefferson's view is also more dangerous. Uh, imagine where you can go with the the thinking on self-interest from those beginnings. Right. Uh, yeah, right. So the book covers 11 presidents, I think I've mentioned, over 10 chapters. Uh, its cover has three of those presidents, Washington, Jackson, and Trump. We've talked about Washington a bit, and we've alluded to Jackson 
Uh, so let's move on to him. How is he a player in the story? You said he kicked open the door. Yeah. Yeah. He is a major player in this transition or in this decline, mm -hmm. in my view, of the office in, again, this uh, uh, vigorous embrace of the idea that the majority should govern. Mm -hmm. And I believe in his first annual message to Congress, he just flat out says that the majority is to rule and that as few impediments as possible should exist to the implementation of the majority's will. So for instance, Jackson recommends the abolition of the Electoral College. Uh, and, and in an essential, essentially Jackson's entire political career is devoted to sort of breaking down any barriers that may exist or any filters or any moderating institutions on public uh, opinion. And so, uh, you know, Jackson is an incredibly significant figure. I certainly make that clear in the book. In my view, however, most of what he recommends was uh, somewhat dangerous. And I contrast him with John Quincy Adams, who I see as more of a, a throwback to the founders or constitutional conception of the presidency. If I could add one thing, Randall, mm -hmm. the... The Jacksonian era, which is frequently portrayed as an era of, you know, the common man, uh, the, Jackson is the champion of the common man. Yeah. There's something to this. But at the same time that Jacksonian democracy is taking root, what's happening is that is that the majority is turning against and using their newfound power to tuck it to those minorities whom they don't particularly care for. And I'm talking primarily about free blacks in the North yeah. who are being stripped of their voting rights and Native Americans in the South and West who are being literally death marched at certain points. Yes. So this is the downside. And this is exactly what Hamilton would have said. This is what happens when you don't emphasize the president taking the lead and the rule of law and instead you make him into the spokesperson spokesperson for the majority the minorities pay a price yeah and 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 in striking imagery that you give there with the the uh the, the death marches yeah and um and also the disenfranchisement of of freed blacks and you know i've i've learned over the years that even during this period slavery is expanding right uh, so you know jacksonian america jacksonian america is you know can be a bright picture <laughs> but there's a very dark side to this um very. highly sort of principled uh, appeal to the majority very yeah an excellent point, Randall. And let me just say that this whole notion of popular sovereignty, mm -hmm. which is going to come to the fore in the 1850s with Stephen A. Douglas, Douglas worships Andrew Jackson. Mm -hmm. And the notion that the American people within the new states and territories should simply be able to vote up or down on the existence of slavery. Right. That's classic Jacksonianism. Yes. As, as, put forward by Douglas. Lincoln, on the other hand, says this regime stands for certain things that are off limits to an up or down vote, <laughs> one of which is liberty and the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, etc. So those principles of the Declaration, according to Lincoln, should not be subject to a kind of Jacksonian referendum. Right, right. Uh, uh, not to mention a, a, a sort of... Uh not to paint uh, Jeffrey as much as you know, I might be guilty of uh, Jefferson derangement syndrome myself. I find him to be the most um, 
vein <laughs> of of the founders in, in a way that really uh, really rankles me. Uh, but you know, Jefferson, um, there's something that I imagine you would call dangerous in Jefferson's uh, notion, uh, his argument that we ought not to be bound by a, a constitution over the years, and this this would end in a popular referendum every 25 or so years. Yes. Absolutely right. And of course, Hamilton found that kind of thinking to just be, well, to be blunt, to be insane. Yeah. You know, I mean, this notion, as Jefferson puts it, that the dead should not govern the living. Right. And that every generation should have the right to start from scratch again. Yeah. I mean, even Madison, who, of course, was Jefferson's close ally, mm-hmm. Madison finds this to be uh, <laughs> unacceptable. <laughs> You know, just almost off off the rails. Right. Um, but that that's Jefferson again, the unbridled faith in the wisdom of the people. Yeah. Um, he's 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 out there. He's out there with people like Thomas Paine. Mm-hmm. And I can't let your comment about Jefferson's vanity pass without <laughs> jumping on the, the pile here. <laughs> Jefferson's willingness to take a pair of scissors mm-hmm. uh, to the Bible. Oh, or at least the New Testament, always struck me as the height of ego, right? Let me, I mean, here's this guy editing the Bible. Yeah. Who who in God's name does that? I, I, I don't think it was in God's name, my man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, not to mention his, uh, his tombstone, which um, cites yeah. him as essentially the sole author of the Declaration. Yeah, right. Right. Which was a really good uh, ad campaign for Jefferson because uh, that's kind of how we think about it. Uh, yeah. Jefferson wrote this thing. Yeah. Um, so there's this belief uh, through from Jefferson through Jackson through others and 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 the pop the, the the beneficence of popular will. Um, now we get to the Trump phenomenon, and. That's somehow it strikes me as I'm raising the question a little bit complicated because it's not like you have to have faith in the people for for the Trump phenomenon to exist. That can be ex- that can be explained perhaps by the demagogue lens alone. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I'm, by the way, this isn't the argument of your book, um, but it just it just strikes me by the way that there's something strange about the Trump phenomenon. It's a very popular presidency in your sense. Um, but but the appeal to the people is is um, is remarkably cynical, it seems to me. Um, so maybe we dive in and talk about Trump. What do you think? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, look, I I try to argue in the book that you know there was a certain inevitability to the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think you know it could have just as easily in some ways happened on the left as it did on the right. In fact, I was somewhat surprised that the Republican Party, which had a history in recent times of kind of playing it safe with their nominees, yeah. um, you know, opted for this guy who arguably wasn't even a Republican, or at least right. the track record was a little thin. Right. Uh, but a, po- a point being, um, all of these changes that I see beginning with Jefferson, accelerating under Jackson, and really hitting warp speed under Wilson, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, you know, they, when you knock the barriers down, when you knock the filtration process, uh, when you put it out of business and you open up the process so much uh, that anyone, any outsider, you know, as long as they have a, enough money to do so, can throw their hat into the ring. Uh, there was there was something inevitable about this, it seems to me. Now, well, I mean, 
as you put it, as you said, um, Trump is uh, or was, hopefully we can speak about him in the past <laughs> tense when it comes to the presidency. Um, you know, he was an incredibly skilled demagogue yeah. who took advantage of a new technology that allowed him to circumvent any of those filters of those those filters right. um, and playing upon people's fears and emotions. I mean, he's a classic demagogue, it seems mm -hmm. to me, mm -hmm. and not a uniter. Somebody who loves to circulate conspiracy theories, which, by the way, is another sort of buried theme yeah. within the book. Yeah, absolutely. The tendency of these populist presidencies to harp on conspiracy theories in order to sort of ride into positions of power. It's really, it's really an interesting one, and it might make for a good book someday. Since you mentioned the parties a couple of times, um, might they play any kind of role um, in in um, reining in the potential for demagoguery uh, and nominees, I think so, Randall. And it is you know I have a chapter at the end where I try to offer some something positive <laughs> in terms of what we can do yeah. to halt this decline. Right. Uh, I have to confess, my publisher asked me if I could put that in there. <laughs> Being a New Englander, I, New Englander, and a descendant of Puritans, I was all happy with all the. Yeah. darkness and gloom that permeated the <laughs> right. book. So figured I had to come up with something Tack positive. Tack on some renewal. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Uh, it does seem to me that the political parties, and look, people like Jim Caesar at UVA and others mm -hmm. have talked about this, mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey Tolis and others, mm -hmm. uh, the parties did play a kind of filtering role, weeding out those candidates who uh, really had perhaps some major character flaws or you know, alcohol problems or some other weakness that really disqualified them from the highest office in the land. Uh, you ended up with a lot of mediocrities, yeah. you know, Benjamin Harrison, uh, you know, Chester Arthur, right. take your pick. But at least those people tended not to do damage. They may have been mediocre, but they didn't, they didn't damage the office or damage the constitutional fabric uh, of this uh, nation. And so uh, I do see, I, I, I recommend a more enhanced role for the political party leadership mm -hmm. in terms of selecting presidential nominees. And let me just say, in 2016, you almost had a circumstance where both parties picked somebody who didn't belong to the party. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Bernie Sanders in the case right. of the Democrats and Trump in the case of the Republicans. That's, you know, it seems to me one of the basics one of the entry fees for joining or becoming a presidential nominee Join the party. is that you at least belong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that speaks yeah. to a lack of of what someone might call people control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, here's here's where I don't mean to get uh, to be a, a hair splitter or or become even too academic, but. Um, while you lament what you call the popular presidency, you don't suggest that the president simply doesn't represent us. There's just a particular way of representing us. And even though this might feel a bit repetitious, let's let's unpack the ways in which in which a president, in your vision, does represent the people. So uh, I think the book uses the term dignity, uh -huh. talks about a dignified presidency quite a bit, talks about a restrained presidency, yes. a president who does not feel compelled to comment 
24-7 on every issue that comes down the pike. Right. That's not what he, eventually she, should be doing. Right. And so it's a, it's a call for presidential silence. Uh, it's a call for presidential restraint and moderation. It's a call for an appeal to, again, to what unifies us, an appeal to the better angels of our nature, to borrow from Mr. Lincoln. Right. Um, look, I know that sounds somewhat vague, um, but you know, I think I think it's it's potentially within reach if if the American people recognize that part of their cynicism, part of their hostility towards the American presidency, towards American government in general, is the result of this um, unlimited, mm-hmm. uh, unrestrained constant stirring of the pot by presidents and other major political figures. The the answer is not more more transparent. The answer is actually less transparency, more restraint, (laughs) um, you know, a certain distance between the people and their leaders. Um, That's a kind of convoluted answer, but I hope it conveyed something of what I'm it's 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 not it's not it it makes sense and it, it unpacks quite a lot in short span um Stephen, as we come to a close i wonder if there's just a a sort of takeaway for the book that you would like the reader to come away with above all yeah um it seems to me this book talks about not just the negative examples it does offer some positive examples of presidents who fulfilled this uh constitutional understanding of the presidency there is there is some hope uh there are examples out there but it requires the american people ultimately this is on us right we have to stop buying into the siren song of of demagogues we have to be willing perhaps to step back ourselves uh to not constantly get caught up in the cauldron of 24 7 politics hyped by social media that benefits from that uh, it requires a kind of civic renewal that starts with an understanding that it doesn't have to be this way. Right. We have done things differently in the past that I would argue were healthier than the way we do things today. So, you know, enhanced civics education, uh, enhanced understanding of American history, mm-hmm. and of course, a reading of The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, wow. I think would help restore us to some health. Well, I mean, that's the first, first on the list. I mean, you've certainly gotten the ball rolling here, Stephen, with your, your magnificent book, the lost soul of the American presidency, the decline into demagoguery and the prospects for renewal, which we just learned today were tacked on at the publisher's behest because my guest couldn't help himself. He's a dark new Englander. (laughs) It was a real pleasure to have you on the show, Stephen. Thanks so much for coming by Podopticon today. Thank you, Randall. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks so much for listening. Next time I meet with Joshua Greenberg to discuss his book, Banknotes and Shin Plasters, The Rage for Paper Money in the Early Republic. Until then, 